and it's my privilege to share with you this evening. Our passage tonight is from Galatians chapter 5, it's verses 22 to 25. It'll be on the screens behind me, and I'll be reading from the New International Version if you'd like to follow along. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Buried in the middle of a story in Mark's Gospel about Jesus driving out an evil spirit from a young boy is one of the most beautifully human remarks by anyone Jesus ever speaks to. It's a paradoxical statement, a statement that on its face seems to be nonsense, impossible, contradictory. Within this declaration lies a kernel of human complexity that betrays the notion that we can understand one another in black and white as one thing or the other, but never both. It's said by the father of the boy who is possessed by the evil spirit, and it's in response to Jesus. The father first asks Jesus, if Jesus can do anything to help, please, Jesus, will you do it? Jesus' response is to say, if I can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And the Father then says to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Sums up my entire faith journey. This is metaphorical black and white existing in the same person at the same time. And I love it. I resonate so much with this father's sentiment. For me, this statement is the paradox of faith. And I was reminded of it this week as I studied our passage from Galatians 5. Because I think Galatians 5.25 articulates the paradox of ethics. It says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Throughout the Bible, we are confronted with the idea that our faith, what we believe, what we think, is intimately connected to our ethics, what we do, how we live. The Apostle James puts this idea succinctly. He says, as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without action is dead. But both our faith and our ethics are embodied, and therefore they exhibit the complexities of our humanity. We can believe and need help overcoming our unbelief all at the same time. We can live by the Spirit and struggle to keep in step with the Spirit all at the same time. This month, Keith has led us to explore being rooted at our center and how being unified in the Spirit of God plays a role in that rootedness. A few weeks ago, Keith preached from Ephesians 2, 
And he brought up this idea of a new humanity that has been formed with Jesus at the center. And that all of the dividing walls of hostility between human beings have been broken down. Ethnic walls, social and economic walls, gender walls. All of humanity has been reunited, reoriented around the living Jesus. And then we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and we saw the idea that there is one faith and one baptism and one God who is over all and through all and in all. This is precisely how a new humanity can be formed. A new creation without the walls of hostility that we erect between ourselves. It is because God is the God of all. And then last week, Keith led us to look at the ways we are empowered by the Spirit of God. The ways that we are reliant on the Spirit of God. And how the Spirit of God searches even the deepest things of our hearts. Our passage is going to be back on the screen behind us. And in it, we are offered a picture of life empowered by the Spirit. A life that is characterized by all that is good. A life that is full of love and joy and peace. A life that offers to others patience and kindness. A life that exhibits faithfulness and gentleness. A life that is not enslaved to any law or sin or death. A spirit-led life leads to life. So why does Paul turn around and talk about death? Look again at this verse. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This kind of verse sounds a little weird even to the most seasoned churchgoer. So I want to unpack it a little bit. Most of our potential misunderstandings are around the meaning of this word flesh. It's easy to think that the word flesh means exactly what we would mean if we used the word today. And a great number of misunderstandings and misinterpretations of Scripture have been spawned by this kind of easy correspondence fallacy. We hear flesh and we think of our bodies. And when we think of our bodies, we think of our humanity. So that when we read a verse like this and we think to ourselves the answer to how to crucify the flesh is to build or rebuild a wall between my body and my spirit. After all, Paul here is talking about just that, a chasm as wide as eternity between the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit. And a very natural extrapolation of this kind of thinking is to assume then that our bodies don't matter. They're just houses for our spirit, which is the real thing that matters. This is the conclusion of misunderstanding the word flesh. And it is dangerous, this misunderstanding. 
The dualism exhibited in this kind of misunderstanding provides the foundation for dismissing the abuse of our bodies from gluttony to anorexia. Dismissing the abuse of others' bodies from chattel slavery to rape to sex trafficking. Dismissing the abuse of our world from the destruction of rainforests to the pollution of the air that we breathe. If only the spiritual matters, then anything physical is disposable. One of the worst examples of this kind of thinking, you can pull the verses off the screen now, Michael, thanks so much. One of the worst examples of this kind of thinking over the past few decades comes under the name purity culture. Now, if you don't know what that phrase means, count your blessings and check Facebook or Twitter for the next three minutes. But for those who do recognize that phrase, you will know that purity culture, within the evangelical church especially, was a way of teaching mostly teenagers that the worst and most damaging thing you could do to yourself and your future marriage, yes, there was an assumption that everyone had a future marriage, the worst thing you could do is to have sex before you were married. And conversely, the way to have a healthy, fulfilled, satisfying, lifelong marriage was to be a virgin when you came to the altar. Both of these assumptions are, of course, untrue. That doesn't mean that striving for a life of holiness, a life that is set apart and devoted to God, is a bad idea. It doesn't mean that. But anyone who experienced purity culture in the church growing up, and there will no doubt be many in this room, needs to hear this. Most of the proponents of purity culture were actually just perpetuating shame culture. And that is wrong. Writer and theologian Hannah Anderson rightly connects this purity culture idea to the more foundational dualism of a disembodied theology. Because we've learned to see that the physicalness, the fleshiness of our humanity, because we've learned to see it as inherently sinful, we've resorted to shaming and fear-mongering ourselves and our children. Instead, Hannah Anderson suggests we ask a different question, a deeper question. How do we relate to our bodies as both good gifts and existing in brokenness? How do we relate to our bodies as both good gifts and existing in brokenness? This is exactly the paradox that I think our passage from Galatians is exploring. And I think a helpful understanding of our passage starts with reimagining the idea of flesh. I don't know about you, but when I hear that word flesh, it's pretty difficult to imagine it meaning anything other than skin and muscle attached to bones and forming a body, my own or someone else's or maybe an animal's. But Paul expects, even banks on this fact, that his audience will have a greater imagination. Paul expects that his listeners in Galatia have been intently listening 
all along, and that they will hear the word flesh in the way that he has defined it throughout this letter. Paul has been careful to refer to flesh as the antithesis to the spirit in a way that illustrates that both flesh and spirit are embodied ways of living, but that they lead in completely opposite directions. The life of the flesh leads to death, and the life of the spirit to life. But both of these ways of living are fully embodied. They are fully human. For Paul, flesh simply refers to living a way of life that is opposed to the way of Jesus. This becomes pretty clear when we look at the laundry list of characteristics of these two ways of life. Yes, it certainly requires a body to exhibit hatred, idolatry, drunkenness, selfish ambition, jealousy, rage, all the things that are listed in Galatians 5, 19-21, just before our passage. But it also certainly requires a body to exhibit love, joy, kindness, gentleness, self-control, for crying out loud. So we come to verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now grammatically, this is a sentence in two parts. And there are two bits of truth that I want to take from this mysterious ethical paradox. First, we should see that Paul is assuming a point of fact in the first part of this verse. He assumes that the Galatians have indeed been made alive by the Spirit of God. They have believed in Jesus as the Messiah. They have been mysteriously unified with Him. They have broken down all the dividing walls between them. They are striving to live into the freedom that Jesus brings. These are all of the points that Paul has been making in the letter up to this point. They are no longer dead in their previous way of life. They are no longer captive to evil, to self-destruction, to addiction, to lust, to power. They are alive in Jesus. That's the first part of the verse. And then the second part is the result of that new life. Keep in step with the Spirit. This is the path Paul wants the Galatians to walk. The Hebrew word for ethics, the concept of ethics that would be in Paul's mind, simply means the walk, to walk. It's a path. And there is inherent in this second half of the verse the assumption of failure. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. As an exhortation, It all but admits that it will not be a perfect walk. I love when Brene Brown talks about vulnerability and the inevitability of failure. And she says that sometimes after her talks, people will come up to her and say things like, I'm ready. I can do this. I'm willing to risk failing. 
And she says that they just haven't gotten it. The courage to live into the freedom of Christ, the courage to step out of what is comfortable, to strive for that life of the Spirit, of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, the courage to do those things includes inevitable failure. It includes constant stumbles and falls. Last week I used an admittedly difficult side of my daughter's personality as an example in confession. This week I'll try to sing her praises a little bit as a way of maybe balancing that out. Unlike her brother Owen, who is naturally cautious and careful, who doesn't like to get hurt or be scared, Afton is a natural daredevil. She sees a gap in furniture and doesn't wait to wonder if she can span that gap. She just hurls her body with reckless abandon. Hopes for the best. There's certainly an element of courage in this attitude. But there's also certain failure at the end of some of those leaps. Afton only has two speeds. There's standing still and there's running headlong as fast as she can. And there are certain stumbles and trips ahead when you run headlong as fast as you can. But when she falls, and sometimes she falls with such speed and force that you go <laughs> and cringe just to wait and see how bad the screaming is going to be. When she falls, she is so quick to bounce back up. Sometimes it even seems like she has bounced on the floor. She's back up on her feet so quickly. And then once she's got her bearings, she takes off again, headlong as fast as she can. This, to me, is a perfect picture of this verse. If we can take to heart the fact that God has made us alive by the Spirit, if we can take the courageous step to start out on this walk with the Spirit, if we can accept the inevitable failures, the stumbles and trips along the way, then we will find ourselves keeping in step with the Spirit. We will find ourselves bearing in all of its embodied beauty the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of walking in the Spirit. The last point I want to make about this passage is about the pronouns of this verse. Forgive me for one more grammatical point. Paul calls the Galatians together with himself to live this spirit-empowered life. All the verses say, let us. Let us. Let us. I find in these plural pronouns a reminder of the necessity of community. The necessity of community in living this path, this walk. If this was an individual path we were walking, it would be lonely. And those failures and stumbles would be hard to overcome. Harder to overcome. But this is a communal path. It's a life that is meant to be lived with one another. Let us Spur on one another on this path. Let us cheer for one another. Let us offer kindness 
and gentleness to one another when we fail. Let us experience joy in the midst of pain. Let us offer patience to ourselves as we struggle. Let us strive for faithfulness. Let us celebrate goodness in one another. Let us love just as Jesus has loved us.